In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him, who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth came came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold... I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of the kingdom, when the, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. 
Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's word. For context, we're still in the reign of Belshazzar. Remember from uh, chapter 6 with Daniel and the lion's den, we entered into the uh, combined Medo-Persia kingdom. They've taken over Babylon. But then in chapter 7, we went back in time so to speak, and we went back to the Babylonian Empire before the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over, and we're still back in the Babylonian Empire with this vision. So King Belshazzar is reigning. It's his third year, and in Daniel's vision, he's in Susa, which is uh, the more prominent city, the capital of the soon to be Medo-Persian Empire. So his vision, he's in Babylon physically, but in his vision he is taken to Susa, which is this uh, city that you might know about from the book of Esther because that's predominantly where it uh, takes place. Um, It's about 400 uh, 400 kilometers or so from Babylon. Uh, And in Daniel 8, in his vision, this is where Daniel gets uh, transported to, so to speak in the city of Susa. And in this vision, we focus in on a particular aspect of the last chapter that we went over. Remember chapter 7, we have the four beasts, the four kingdoms, and then there is the fifth uh, indestructible kingdom that we see the Son of Man receives. And uh, here in chapter 8, it seems like we focus in on the second and third kingdoms. There, And notice that this is connected with that vision. So Daniel wants uh, us to understand that chapter 8 is very much connected with chapter 7. Notice he says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Now it's likely that that's referring to the vision that he has just uh, spoken about in Daniel chapter Seven, given that that's in the first year of King Belshazzar, now we're in the third year, and Daniel wants these to be connected. So Daniel sees this vision of a ram and a goat clashing, and what I want to do today is look at uh, the vision of the ram and the goat uh, clashing, which we have from verses 3, uh, mostly to verse 7, a bit of verse 8, but then look at that in light of the interpretation we have, rather than Um, addressing the vision and then later the interpretation. Just take the interpretation uh, with the vision as one so that we're helped in our understanding. So in verses 3 to 4, Daniel uh, records here, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, uh, thankfully... God gives us a very uh, helpful passage here where in the interpretation he literally says this is referring to the Medo-Persian Empire. So verse 20, we read, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. 
Now, this is why it seems likely that this is connected with chapter 7, because you remember the second beast in chapter 7 is this bear that's come up on one side, he's sort of imbalanced. Likewise, here we have two horns, but one is higher than the other. And it seems like this is the combined Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persian Empire was slightly stronger. So the bear imbalance is sort of demonstrating in light of this that there could be an imbalance in the kingdoms. There's two together and one is slightly stronger. Likewise, here we have the two horns, but one is slightly higher. So the ram is representative of Medo-Persia and its rise to power. And then in verses 5 to 7, we have this goat coming in, and this clashing of the ram and the goat. And this goat has a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he charges at the ram in powerful wrath. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this in person. I've never seen uh, a ram and a goat clashing, so I looked up on YouTube through the week, and it's actually uh, quite confronting. I mean, if I've seen videos before of two rams uh, bashing their heads against each, each other. So, and you can hear the sound. It's a strong clashing. So we're meant to kind of have this picture of a really, really fierce battle and to hear the clashing of their horns coming together. It sounds like a gunshot. It, it, if you were there, it would uh, sink into the pit of your stomach. So there's this clashing going on between the ram and the goat. And verse 21 clearly tells us the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So the previously great and powerful ram is now crushed and trampled by the king of Greece. Now this surely, if we look historically at, at this, would likely refer to Alexander the Great. You probably know the stories of Alexander the Great and his triumph over Medo-Persia. Uh, one of the youngest rulers, uh, one of the youngest and most successful rulers of all history by 26 he had basically conquered most of the known world. Uh, in verse 8 here, we read uh, what happens at the end. After this um, uh, king of Greece rises to power in verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Now, although Alexander the Great conquered the known world at 26, by 32, he is dead. And he actually dies in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it's a reminder of how quickly dominant and powerful figures become swallowed up by just another kingdom. I was reminded in studying this through the week, the glory of man is like the grass of the field. The grass withers, the flower, flades, uh, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The glory of man, regardless of how great man is, he is like the flower of the field or the grass. It withers and fades away. The only thing that will stand is the word of our God, his kingdom and his rule. So this picture here is yet another of the futility of worldly kingdoms. Even the most dominant and vast empires. I mean, these were huge empires and they all come to an end. And it's easy for us to miss the weight of this given that we live in relative ease. Here in Australia, we live in relative ease. I mean, the most like draconian rule that we've experienced is probably like what people have referred to how uh, the government um, dealt with COVID and, and that sort of to some people felt quite draconian and yet if we compare ourselves to war-torn countries where it's life and death we have it pretty good it's really really easy 
to be a Christian here. It's really, really easy to live in a society like this. But imagine our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine or in the Middle East reading this passage, seeing these kingdoms clashing against each other, seeing these wars and living literally in a place where you don't know whether soldiers are going to come and uh, rape your wife and kill your children and eventually kill you. And that's a reality that we've seen for many in Ukraine, uh, many stories in the Middle East. And it's of great comfort. It is of tremendous comfort as we read a passage like this to know that God holds these rulers on a leash. That there is no destruction that will happen other than that which God allows. That is his prerogative. And so we may not see the result we want in the time that we want, but we know their ultimate end. We know the end of evil rulers. We know their end. There is coming a day, as we read over in chapter 7, where the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. And what do we read? They will reign forever, forever and ever. Forever. Indestructible. Infinite. There is coming that day. And in that moment of eternity... How will we be able to compare a few decades of suffering? It's incomparable. Hence the Apostle Paul's saying in Romans chapter 8. So now we turn to the arrogant and destructive rulers. That's the ram and the goat clashing. Now we read from verse 9 and verse, uh, verses 9 to verse 12. And here's where we'll take some of the interpretation Uh, to help us understand this little horn as well. So um, the interpretation, if we just quickly read from verse 15, this is where Daniel uh, seeks to understand, and he sees standing before him there the appearance of a man, and then this man's voice calls out to Gabriel. Now, this is the first time that we actually have a name for an angel in the Bible, and he calls out to Gabriel, make this man understand. Make him understand The vision. And uh, naturally, as we seem to see in Scripture, the response of Daniel is just utter terror to fall on his face in fear. It's funny how we always have pictures of angels as these cute, fluffy creatures, but the response of everyone in the Bible is just absolute terror. Face to the ground would rather be dead than look for a moment longer at this terrifying creature. So this is the... Uh, response of Daniel to the angel. So now let's look at the description of the horn in verses 9 to 12 and get some help from the interpretation as well. Uh, First thing to note, we should understand, I believe, that this horn is not the same as the little horn that we just went over in chapter 7, particularly if we are taking this vision to be homing in on the second and third beast, these the media... uh, Medo-Persian Empire and then the um, Greco Empire. Uh, The horn in chapter 7 seems to come from this fourth kingdom and is slightly different in many ways, but they will have similarities and they both embody the pinnacle of opposition to God. But now we read this other horn. There is another horn that comes from the Greek Empire. And in verses 9 to 12, let's look firstly at what we clearly see from this horn. I believe we clearly see greatness. We clearly see opposing God's work through destruction and persecution. And we clearly see promoting falsehood. 
So we see greatness, we see opposition, and we see falsehood. So firstly, greatness. Read uh, parts of verses 9, 10, and 11. Uh, out, of the, out of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great. Then verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Clearly we see greatness in the sense of uh, his rule and power. There is greatness from this horn. Secondly, we see him opposing God's work through destruction and persecution. Notice verse 10, the second half there. Some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, host is a word that's often used. It just means army, but it's used as an as as a, a, usually the collective gathering of either God's people or this heavenly army. So it's clearly referring to a uh, those who are on God's side, the host of uh, God's people. Notice it's connected with stars. Stars also usually refers to God's people. Think of Joseph's dream where the stars are the uh, 11 other brothers. Stars are usually referring to God's people or um, stars in Revelation as the churches. Uh, also look at verse 24, if we skip ahead to the interpretation. We see that this little horn, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Clearly, he is opposing the saints, God's people. Notice also the direct opposition to God through the temple. If you look at verse 11. What do we read? As he became great, the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The hymn is referring to the prince of the host. So this little horn takes away from the prince of the host the regular burnt offering and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now this could refer to the prince of the host as either the high priest or it could refer to, just, prince is just a word that means ruler or leader, it could refer to uh, a an imagery of Christ himself or just the high priest. Certainly what we can take is that it is a leader of God's people. Notice that if you have an ESV, uh, they make the decision for you where it's a capital P for prince. Hence, it's likely referring to Jesus there. Um, either way, whether it's the high priest or the Lord of hosts, we see the horn uh, directly opposing God's work by taking away the sacrifices and the sanctuary. Now, thirdly, promoting falsehood. So we've got greatness, we've got opposing God's work and God's people, and now we've got promoting falsehood. Notice verse 12. We read that he's going to throw truth to the ground. And then in verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. This is a cunning, deceitful ruler who will throw truth to the ground, which is to say he is going to promote lies and falsehood. So to summarize, what we clearly see from this little horn, there is a desire to be in the place of God. There is a desire to oppose God and his people, and there is a desire to perpetuate lies. A desire to be in place of God, a desire to oppose God and his people, and a desire to perpetuate lies. Now, if we look at this historically, it seems almost certain 
that this horn refers to the wicked ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the most brutal rulers over the Jewish people in about the second century BC. And let's see how Antiochus Epiphanes fits in with these categories of greatness, of destruction and persecution, and of promoting falsehood. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, did indeed achieve greatness in his, his rule. I mean, he had quite a dominant rule, which he inherited eventually from Alexander the Great and the four successors and eventually coming to him. And he was certainly great in his own eyes. Notice verse 25 in the interpretation. Uh, we read, um, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. So it's kind of like saying he was great, but really like he has a pretty big ego. In his own mind he shall become great. Now this is certainly the case. Antiochus Epiphanes actually made coins... And on the coins, he had Theos, Epiphanes, because Epiphany, you recognize the word, it means revealing or uh, making plain and having an epiphany is coming to an understanding of something. And Theos is just the word of God. So what it meant was God manifest. So he believed that he was God manifest to the people. But he believed that as a sense of being sort of the God of Zeus manifest to the people. So we can see that he clearly believed that he was as great as the prince of the host. He believed that he was God's gift, quite literally, to the people. Secondly, destruction and persecution. We know that he especially persecuted the Jewish people. Prior to him, even under the Greek Empire, there was a mutual understanding between the Jewish people where they could continue their Jewish religion. They wouldn't have the power... Uh, that would come to the same level as the Greek Empire, but there was just sort of this mutual understanding that they could continue in some of their Jewish practices. But Antiochus put an end to that. He made things like circumcision and Sabbath-keeping illegal and punishable by death, if you were to keep these things. Uh, After some initial rebellion by the Jews, we read in this other book called Second Maccabees, which deals with this history, an event where Antiochus Epiphanes returned to Jerusalem and he, uh, this is what really led to, to an increase in slaughter of the Jews. So we read in Second Maccabees, Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt, that is Antiochus Epiphanes, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants... In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. So this is the description of a brutal warlord, a narcissistic warlord, a God-opposing ruler. And eventually after this, after Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered masses of Jews, he puts an end to temple worship. So he ceases the burnt offerings He actually kills the high priest in 170 BC and he desecrates the temple by offering a pig to Zeus in it, one of the most unclean animals by Jewish standards, and then he sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple, which is surely an abomination of desolation. It's a... uh, the most blasphemous, arguably, act that has happened in the temple. So this is surely the transgression that makes desolate that we read in verses 13, where uh, the Holy One 
um, asks the question to another holy one and says, how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? These, the events that happen under the reign of Antiochus Epiphany certainly fit in with this. Uh, so that's greatness or putting himself in the place of God. That's destruction and persecution and now promoting falsehood. I think we can clearly see that. We actually have records of Antiochus Epiphanes burning scrolls of the Torah and compelling pagan worship under the threat of death, similar to what we've already seen in the book of Daniel. And if we look at the description of the little horn and the interpretation in verse 23, to jump back to that, read in verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Now, this is referring to the little horn. And this king of bold face, this is the same description that is given... Of the prostitute in Proverbs 7, where we read of the prostitute in Proverbs 7, this harlot who's crying out, uh, come and uh, my husband's gone away on a trip, come and let's have our fill of love. And it's a picture of seduction. And she is described as a woman having a bold face. And it's the exact same phrase in Proverbs 7. So this king of bold face is this idea of seduction away from God to what is immoral. In a similar way, Antiochus Epiphanes, he embodies all of the grotesque abominations that lie behind this adulteress in Proverbs 7, this harlot trying to take God's people away from himself. So it seems undeniable that this refers mostly to Antiochus Epiphanes, but I think as we will see, and as I alluded to last week, the events of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century BC simply set the scene for future abominations just like that. He becomes a model or a pattern for the future opposition to God. Now notice the subtle but common theme here if we look at the interpretation of the vision which Gabriel eventually gives to Daniel uh, notice in verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And then in verse 25, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. This has the divine hand all over it. Again, clearly saying, regardless of his greatness, it is actually from the Lord. As we went over earlier in Daniel, God makes it clear that he's the one who raises up Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one. In Jeremiah 27 to 29, God is actually referring to, to Nebuchadnezzar as his chosen servant to destroy his people, to exile them. God is able to raise up wicked rulers. And here we read that the little horn's power is not actually by his own power. Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote where he says, Even for the breath one uses to sin against God, he is dependent upon the one he sins against for that breath. Even for the breath one uses to sin against God, he is dependent upon the one he sins against for that breath. 
Man cannot even lift a fist in defiance to God without God first giving him the strength to lift that fist. That is what we clearly see through the book of Daniel. We see the Most High God is completely in control of these wicked rulers. He is able to use their wickedness in order to punish his own people, and then he is able to punish the wickedness of those rulers, which we see in verse 25. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. We know that Antiochus Epiphanes was eventually dethroned. Some sources, Jewish sources, say that he was actually murdered by Judas Maccabeus, who was the leader of the Maccabean revolt, where they finally took back the temple and they cleansed it. They believe that Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, uh, killed by him. But either way, he, he died. So again, the comfort to Jewish exiles, the comfort to Jewish exiles and the comfort to us, is that even the most wicked rulers eventually succumb to the judgment seat of God. There is a necessary confrontation with the Ancient of Days that we saw in chapter 7 where every single wicked ruler, every single human being will face the judgment seat of God. There is nothing now hidden that will not be revealed. True justice will be served. Now, in verse 13... Of chapter 8, we read that Daniel overhears some holy ones speaking about this desecration, and one of them asks the other, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And then we read the answer is 2300 mornings and evenings. So that's the answer that they give. To all of these events, notice that the question is referring to these events. How long is this going to happen? 2,300 evenings and mornings. So this is to answer the question in verse 13, which asks about the regular burnt offering being taken away, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary. And these are all the things we see the little horn doing in verses 9 to 12. And this is important because often when we get into numbers like this, we forget that we are 2,500 years removed from this book. So many things, though there is a lot still to be future oriented, I believe, but a situation like this, it's important to remember that the vision for Daniel is future oriented. But for us, it is historical. We can see the events. Remember, Daniel is receiving this in about the uh, 5th century BC, and it's referring to events that are going to happen almost 300 years later. So in verse 19, when uh, Gabriel is speaking and he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. So notice that this is referring to the latter end of the indignation. Even though we have the phrase here, uh, the end of time, the time being referred to as the latter end of indignation here in the 2300 mornings and evenings. But as we'll see later on, it becomes a pattern, I believe, for the end of time as well. But in this vision, we can see that it is referring to the latter end of the indignation, these events tied up with the little horn. So the 2300 days, if we think about this number, this could be 2300 mornings and evenings, uh, which would be 1,150 days, or it could be 2,300 days. 
uh, fully. And either way, there is actually really neat, uh, a, a really neat uh, fulfillment that we can see in the events of Antiochus Epiphanes when we think of 2300 days. So if it is 2300 days, not 1150, then we know that Antiochus killed the high priest in about the year 170 BC. Now remember, 2300 days is a little bit more than six years by the Jewish calendar. And we know that Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple in 164 BC. So the high priest is killed in 170 BC. And then in 164 BC, uh, Judas Maccabeus cleanses the temple after it had been desecrated and it is restored. If it is 1150 days, then this is about the amount of time when the sacrifices were stopped in about 167 BC, when the altar of Zeus was erected in the temple and there was no temple worship for about three years, which would be about the amount of time if it was 1150 days. So either way, you can actually see from this, uh, from the number 2300 days and from what we know about Antiochus Epiphanes, there is uh, a helpful uh, fulfillment that we can see from the events of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, to finally the cleansing of the temple in 164 BC. Now, if we think about that as the uh, literal fulfillment, and on top of this, a major part of this is to bring comfort to those who are under such an ungodly rule. Remember the comfort that this is supposed to bring. So the specific number here... Also, I believe there's a symbolic element that means that the time of ungodliness is finite. Like, that's the important thing. It's finite. It's limited, hence a precise number. Now, there's a lot more that I'd like to say on this vision. But what I want to do now is just give three comforting conclusions from this and then a final exhortation for us. First comforting conclusion. The end of these worldly kingdoms has already been determined. Remember chapter 2 and chapter 7. The end of these worldly kingdoms has already been determined. There is no worldly kingdom, no government, no ruler who is able to reign for any moment longer than God had already determined before the foundation of the world. The end of these worldly kingdoms has already been determined. Secondly, and related, there is a God-ordained time limit on destruction. Notice the 2300, a specific number given to say this will end. Think of the numbers all throughout the book of Revelation. That there will be a period, 42 months is given a lot. There are other numbers. Or think of Jesus saying to the church of Smyrna, you will suffer tribulation for 10 days. There's a precise number. It's to show there is a God-ordained time limit on destruction. No destruction will happen which does not have a time limit on it. Thirdly, and linked again, no destruction can occur other than that which God allows, which is, of course, uh, a teaching that some people find unpalatable in our society to sort of think of everything good is from God, everything bad is from the devil, and God's not involved in that. The reality is that God must allow, look at the book of Job, suffering must allow 
the devil to do anything. So no destruction can occur other than that which God allows. Final exhortation. Stand firm and endure as the day draws near. I'll explain this. Final exhortation. Stand firm and endure as the day, that is the day of redemption, draws near. So while the events of Daniel 8 are largely concerned with Antiochus Epiphanes, with these events in the second century BC, there are still future implications for all followers of Jesus. While I believe these events find their fulfillment in the events of Antiochus Epiphanes, it is perhaps, you might say, a partial fulfillment. And there will be yet more destruction in this sense. And so therefore there are implications for all followers of Jesus. As is often the case, historical events have their future realisation in a time in the future. So in verse 17, when the messenger says to Daniel, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. As I said, that time of the end surely refers partly to the latter end of indignation that he goes on to say. But also it could be that this whole thing also refers to the time of the very end. So just as we saw last week, that the Antichrist figure, as John helps us understand, there is a final Antichrist figure, and yet there are many Antichrists. So there's a final realisation of it, and yet there are many Antichrists among us. And we see something similar in Jesus' words in Matthew 24. So if you do have uh, your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, this is where Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse, which we're not going to go into detail on. Perhaps another time when we eventually get through the Gospel of Matthew, we can hunker down in that. But just uh, very briefly, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives the signs of the end of the age. He's answering questions where his disciples ask, hey, what's going to be the sign of your coming? What's going to be the sign of the, the end of the temple and of uh, all things, the culmination of all things? And in verse 15 of Matthew 24, he warns the people, that when they see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And he says, let the reader understand. Now, this is surely referring to chapter 9, verse 27, where we have the exact same phrase of the abomination of desolation. And yet Jesus is saying, when you see the events spoken of by uh, Daniel, the abomination of desolation which the context of that for all of the audiences, given that it was mostly Jewish audiences, would have been the events we've just gone over in it with Antiochus Epiphanes, desecrating, desecrating the temple. And Jesus says, when you see the events spoken of by Daniel, the abomination of desolation, context being something that looks like what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, then you are to flee... So Jesus points people back to the desecration of the temple to look forward to something like that in the future. But Jesus says that this abomination of desolation, though Antiochus Epiphany certainly fulfilled that, he's saying clearly there's more to come. There is more to come. 
So he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The blasphemous events of Antiochus Epiphany set the scene, became a model for yet more blasphemy and desecration in the future, which we saw again. Uh, another fulfillment in the um, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But then we look at Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he talks about the man of lawlessness, and it seems like there's yet another fulfillment. It seems like he's, he very much has a, a figure right at the end of the age, where he says the man of lawlessness will exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This sounds an awful lot like what Antiochus Epiphanes did, what Titus, the general, did in AD 70, and what will happen in the end. Again, the events of Daniel 8 set the scene for the future blasphemy that Jesus warns about, and Paul says the same thing. And here's the exhortation. In the context of both Jesus speaking of this in Matthew 24 and then Paul in 2 Thessalonians, in this context, there is a common theme connected to this. It's that of endurance and firmness as we look forward to the final day. So in the context of Jesus giving these words in Matthew 24, right before he says this, he says in verse 13, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul, in a similar way, says the same, same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2 after talking about the man of lawlessness. He says, Therefore stand firm and hold or seize to the traditions that you were taught. So in the context of all this destruction and then longing for that to be done away within our day of redemption, there is this exhortation to endure and stand firm, hold fast to the traditions as you look forward to the day. Standing firm with endurance in the face of great difficulty is the dominant call of the Christian life. To stand firm, to not waver, to not be like a child or like wind tossed about, but to stand firm with endurance. And notice that the concepts of standing firm and endurance require opposition and difficulty. So you don't endure through a 30-minute massage. You just enjoy it. You endure through a 30-mile grueling hike. There's difficulty in that. You don't stand firm in our culture as you advocate for LGBT rights. That's too easy. Everyone sees your virtue. Yes, it's very easy to stand firm upon LGBT rights because that's widely accepted as virtuous in our society. You have to stand firm on a biblical view of sexuality and gender in our society. That's, that that ha faces uh, resistance and opposition. So in the New Testament examples of warning about future opposition to God that resembles the acts of this little horn here, we have this clear exhortation to stand firm and endure, to hold fast, to seize literally what we have been taught. Notice even the writer of Hebrews actually says that our endurance will be the evidence of our salvation ultimately. He says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firm to the end. 
That's the only way. You may have firmness now, but the reality is the only way that we will see if any of us has come to share in Christ is if we hold our original conviction firm to the very end. That's it. It requires endurance. Implication being, don't drift. Don't drift away. Don't wander off. That's the opposite of enduring and standing firm. And we are in a day where the cultural shifts of our day make it really easy to drift away and let biblical truths slip through our fingers. It is very easy for that to happen. How easy is it for us to succumb to this reduced or watered down version of Christianity, which reduces the Christian life to a minimal amount of commitment one Sunday a week, maybe a Wednesday night, the rest of your life purely about you. And as long as you attend, we'll affirm you as a Christian. How easy to drift off into that very unbiblical view of discipleship. How easy is it to drift off into uncritically accepting a world, a very worldly way of thinking which believes that love, to be loving, requires complete acceptance, complete and total acceptance of everyone for everything they do. How easy it is to drift off into that. How easy it is for us to drift off into the same laziness and apathy of our entertainment-driven culture where we entertain ourselves to death and just become apathetic about everything and fail to have a right and proper zeal for the Lord. How easy is it to drift off into that? Or one that hits home, I think, for us, it certainly did for me. How easy is it to drift off into self-righteousness because we think we understand right theology and everyone else has it wrong? How easy to drift off into that level of self-righteousness. So as we continue to see lawlessness increase and whether we have the persecution that may resemble the events that we see here in Daniel, our exhortation is to stand firm and endure. And what is necessarily tied to that is our constant watchfulness and eagerness for the day of Christ, for the day to re- where he returns, where our redemption is drawing near. We stand firm where we lift our heads and we long for the day of redemption. Because that's the thing. Destruction, disorder and chaos, the things that we read in Daniel, should always point us to the fact that there's something wrong with the world. We need a saviour, so we long for redemption. Destruction and disorder should always point us to our saviour. So if you are not eager for the day of Christ, you are not eager for what God desires you to be eager for. We must be eager for this. Everyone wants destruction to be gone. How many actually want Christ to return? Sometimes it seems like people will be disappointed because they had their whole life planned and Jesus has ruined that now because he's returned. We long for the day of Christ. An eager longing for the day of Christ must undergird our endurance and firmness in the faith. Let me finish with one scripture. From Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the exhortation. Stand firm. Let us 
Hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir one another on to more love and good works, biblical love and good works. Let's not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. Let's do it all the more and let's continue it all the more as we see the day drawing near, as we long for that day. Let's provoke one another on to that longing so that that would be the foundation of our endurance and our ability to stand firm.